Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. We'll begin reading from verse 14 through verse 21. This also is God's holy word. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. May we go to our God in prayer to ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Our loving Father, we thank you that we can come before you, that we can bow before you. Remind us, Father, how great you are and how low we are. And Father, we acknowledge that you are our Heavenly Father, that you've purchased us by the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray and thanks that we have access to you because of your Son, Jesus Christ, and that we might come boldly, trusting that you give us the very best. Father, we thank you that you know what is best for us, that you are perfect in wisdom, that you abound in love, and compassion, and that you delight to give good gifts to your children who ask of you. And Father, oftentimes we sense our own powerlessness, our lack of power in our spiritual nature, yet you are the one who gives true power. And Father, we pray in thanks that you have promised that Jesus is the one who overcomes the world. Father, we pray that we would have a longing for, the, for you and a longing for the things that are pleasing to you. <clears throat> Father, we pray that you indeed would be exalted. Father, we pray if any are here who have not trusted in you, Father, we pray that you might do a mighty work by the power of your spirit. We pray, Father, that your son, Jesus Christ, would be exalted, that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> This Disney movie called Aladdin is based on, was it some kind of a legend or some kind of a a tale about a man who finds a bottle, he rubs this bottle and out pops this genie, and then he gets these three wishes. In many ways, some Christians think about prayer like this genie in the bottle, that somehow this genie is bound to, to fulfill the wishes of Uh, this person who rubs the bottle. But I hope you can see that this story falls far short of everything regarding our approach to God in prayer. That one thing that does reveal is that the three wishes and what a person asks for really does reveal their heart. And prayer the prayers, our prayers before God reveals our heart, reveals our desires. 
And perhaps you and I should be asking ourselves, for what do we pray? For what do we pray? Here I think about how, as a person grows in Christ, their prayers begin to change. And we ought to be thinking about who God is and who we are as we approach Him. And that we must, we must realize that we have to bow before our Father. We must bow the knee. Perhaps not physically, but at least from a, an attitude, a posture before God, there should be that of humility. Here I think about Ephesians and how the Apostle Paul, we're kind of in the, the middle of the book now, and chapter 3 will, will be the transition from the, the Apostle Paul telling God's people all that God has done for them in Christ, in, in the Father, in the Holy Spirit, and the work of salvation, the work of, of providing for you all that we need for life and godliness. And then starting in the beginning of chapter 4, we have this transition where he's done saying all these things have been done by God for his glory, for your good. And then he begins to address the matter of, so this is how you ought to live. This is how you ought to respond to what you've been given in Christ. Here, we have this truth. Humbly ask your heavenly father, who is exceedingly generous, and he will grant you his spirit's power. Humbly ask your heavenly father, who is exceedingly generous, and he will grant you his spirit's power. We have the first point. Your humble attitude in prayer in verse 14. We have four points for today. So verse, one, verse 14, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. So this is, describes our humble attitude to our God in prayer. Paul has spoken earlier in Ephesians chapter 3 regarding his stewardship of the gospel. That he and other apostles had been given this revelation. They were made ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it was to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That through the church, this manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the ends of the earth, even to the angelic hosts. He begins this verse, for this reason. It's like a therefore. You have to ask why it's there. And you think about all the things that came before it. He speaks in, in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 18 for through him we both have access in one spirit to the father that Jew and Gentile both have access in one spirit to the father earlier he he said in chapter 3 verse 12 in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him so here you ask about why is he saying for this reason. He's talking about access. Access to the Father through the Son. He's praying for these Ephesian Christians. Verse 13 there in chapter 3. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. He's concerned for them. He, he understands that he's in prison. He's writing to them in prison. And though he's in prison and he can't, he can't preach to them the word of God. This letter, this letter manages to get to them. And what the prison guards can never take away from the Apostle Paul is that he can continue to pray for them. And oftentimes we think, well, there's nothing I can do. 
you can still pray. And how important prayer should be in our own lives. Here, perhaps some people are asking the question, there in verse 14, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. So, is there a correct posture of prayer? Is, is, the, is the posture of prayer mandated? Well, we see certain examples about posture. On, on our knees, Acts 20, verse 36, well, when Paul was uh, leaving Ephesus, when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. So he, he called the, the elders of the Ephesian church and were told that he knelt down and prayed with them. There's also the posture of standing. This is, was a common uh, posture for praying. And we see that with King Solomon, 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 20, 22. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. This is the prayer of dedication of the temple. We have also the matter of prostration, a face, probably like a face down, arms out. This is what Jesus did. Mark chapter 14, verse 35. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. This is our Lord Jesus, prostrated. But yet we also see, even as the psalmist describes, that there is praying on the bed. Psalm 30, 63, verse 6. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. Meaning that here, when you think about your day as you're trying to fall asleep, perhaps there, there are things that come up of, oh, let me think about the, some of the things I did wrong, right? Even sinful. Well, it's a good time that you would pray and repent before the Lord. That there may be great tasks that you have in the coming day. And though worries come, anxieties come, even as you're trying to fall asleep, that's a good time that you would say, Lord, help me not to worry about tomorrow. I offer these things to you prayer so that I can say, I've passed them off to you, Lord. There's no reason for me to worry. I can get my sleep now. And so we see here that there are two extremes, positions regarding the posture of prayer, two extreme views. One is that prayer is only valid and acceptable when offered in the proper position. The other is that the physical position or posture in prayer is completely immaterial to your attitude in prayer. So we think about these two extreme positions and we have to say, you know what, we probably should avoid those extremes. So one says posture has no bearing. The other says it is only a valid prayer if you're in one of these acceptable positions. And perhaps the right answer is somewhere in the middle where there, there is, is a valid reason why someone may, may pray while lying on his bed trying to fall asleep, right? Perhaps uh, someone who is, is injured in some way. All these matters come up. What we ought to remember is that when we come before God, that we must come with the proper attitude of humility. That we're, we're in the posture of kneeling because we come to God as those who are lowly. We come before our Father. Here, we think about how kneeling is a sign of a person's humility. It's as if a beggar goes to someone else and they, they fall on their knees and, and they ask for something, ask for food or for money. 
that kneeling is a sign of your humility and mine. You realize that it's pride that is the primary barrier to going to God in prayer. For the non-Christian. Remember, I was talking to a, a friend this, this past week that he uh, owns his own business. He employs all kinds of people. And occasionally, certain people come to them, come to him, and they indicate, listen, I've, I've got an offer from another company to become a manager. So, so they're, they're not a manager then. And they say, hey, I'm going to go become this manager there. And this, this Christian man uh, sometimes would say to them, you know what? I don't think you're ready to take that role. There are several things that we would like to see different in you, right? And that's why we haven't offered such a thing to you. But of course, they would say, hey, it comes with this much more pay and, uh, and all these uh, benefits and responsibilities. I'm going to go. And they say, well, we, we wish you well. But uh, yeah, we, we wish you well. And, and he says, then they go and they, they fail exactly as he had expressed concern. And he says that not a single one of them have come back to him to say, you know what, I'd like to work for you again. Those things that you noticed that were deficient in me that resulted in my failure in my, my, my next job, help me work on those things. He would have said, I would be glad to. He says, none of them have come back. It was pride that kept them from returning. And we think about how pride is also what keeps a sinner from going to God, a non-Christian, uh, to go into God saying, I am in need of your son, Jesus, because I lack righteousness of my own, and that Jesus alone is that source of righteousness that you freely offer to me. That pride is what keeps us from God. Pride is what causes us to say, God, whatever you're offering, I refuse it. For the Christian, pride is what keeps us from, from turning to him or returning to him time and time again. Time and time again, we ought to go back to him for forgiveness, for his mercies, for his power. That if we have less pride, if we humbled ourselves, that we would find great blessing from the Lord and great encouragement too. Here, we're reminded that the proper attitude when we come to our God is that we must not come with a list of demands. It's not the genie in the bottle. Rather, we come humbly imploring of our God. The proper position, the proper attitude is that we approach God, that he indeed is the great king, that he indeed is our heavenly father, and that we can come to him because of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we have a mediator, that he is the one who intercedes on your behalf and mine. So this is the humble attitude in prayer. We have the second point, the divine object of your prayer in verse 15. From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Here, we think about how God is our heavenly father. That when we think about what does it mean to be a good father, that we all must look to the perfect example of our God, our heavenly father. As we think through life, we start to come upon difficulties when you have earthly fathers who are evil. Especially for children who have had uh, cruel or abusive fathers, 
They start to wonder, how can I call my heavenly father my father if my thoughts and the, the knowledge that I have of a father is, is poor? You realize that our God is far greater than these issues, right? He, he has given us other, other men, men in the church, right? Men in the, in the family who have been better examples. But we have in our father, as he's revealed to us in his word, that he shows us what a good father is. Here, our Lord, he speaks to us and he addresses how we think that we are good fathers. That we know what our children need. That, hey, uh, that's, not, that's not what my son or my daughter like. Uh, we, we, we know what they like. We know what's good for them. And, and yet, our Lord Jesus speaks about this and says that our father is far greater than us. Matthew seven eleven. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Meaning that earlier he, 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 asked, he, he mentions, hey, if your son asks for a fish, would you give him a snake, like a poisonous snake? And the answer is no. We wouldn't want our children to be playing with these vipers. If we ask for a loaf of bread, will we give them a stone? No, we would not. And here, Jesus is saying that our Heavenly Father is far wiser than we are. He knows what is best for us. We've asked for certain things, and He has not given them to us, at least not yet. And it's not because our God is stingy in any way. Our God is exceedingly generous. He's held those things back from us for a reason. And that we think we know better of what we need. But God knows far better than we do of what is good for us. So he indeed is the divine object that when we pray, we're praying to the Father, to our Heavenly Father. And that he is infinite in wisdom and that he is exceedingly generous. So the third point, your hopeful expectation in prayer. The first part of verse 16 that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you. Here, when we go to our God, what type of expectation do you have? Do you see God as a very tight-fisted God? One who is unwilling to give. You think about the, the parable of, was it the parable of the talents? That the man who had the one talent, who buried his talent in the ground, after he commended the man with five talents, the man with two talents, he gets to the man with one talent, and when that man says, I buried your talent in the ground, he says, for I knew you to be a hard man. Meaning that there were certain assumptions that that servant had about his master. I knew you to be a hard man, that you gather what you did not sow. Here, we ask ourselves, what are the thoughts that you have about our God? What are the thoughts that are preventing you from going to him in prayer? Perhaps it's because, as James says, that we don't have because we don't ask, because we ask with wrong motives. With the, thing, the, the thing that we're asking for is already wrong, right? 
And, and that's why we're not going to him in prayer. But there are other reasons. Is it because we think that our God is one who is unable to provide or unwilling to provide? He's lacking in generosity. Instead, what we ought to think is great things about our God. That our God is exceedingly generous. He can give in any way that he chooses. That somehow, if, if you needed to communicate to your friend some important truth, right, there's any number of ways that you could, you could communicate to them. Right? You could send them a text. You could give them a call. Right? You could stop by their house, knock on their door. You could, you could have one of these, uh, these planes that you know, pull that sign. Right? You know, any, one, any number of ways that you realize that God can provide in any number of ways too. He can provide through other people. He can provide through your family. He can provide through the church. He can provide directly. He can provide through a stranger. Here, James chapter 1, verses 5 through 7 gives this warning. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. When we ask of God, we ought to ask exceedingly large. We ought to ask exceedingly big. We ought to have great expectations from our God. Because we know, God, you are infinite in wisdom. You're holy. You're righteous. You're exceedingly loving to your children. If it were good for me, you will provide it. If not, you will hold it back. And we acknowledge that he refines us, even in our prayers. The things that we asked for when we were younger, right? You think about the things that children ask for. Hey, can, can I just have candy, 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 candy for three meals a day? And parents, if we're wise, would say, absolutely not. This is, this is going to harm you, right? And you think about how God holds those very things back from us when we are spiritual children. That when we pray, we must come to God in faith, believing that he will provide us what we ask for. And if not, it will be exceedingly better. It will be exceedingly better. And that's, that's the attitude we ought to have. You know what? I'm asking for this. But yet, not my will, your will. Meaning that if you don't give it to me, I trust that what I receive is not worse. We often think, hey, wait a minute. I'm getting the short end of the stick here. God doesn't give us short ends of sticks. Jesus is the one who gets the short end of the stick, right? That he gives to us the exceedingly long end. And that when we go to God our prayer, we ought to think in that, in that way that God, our Lord Jesus is the one who got the short end of the stick. We trust that you always give us the long end. Here, we need to, we need to think about who it is that we're approaching in prayer. This is why we need to have great thoughts about our God as we, as we pray to him. Romans chapter 3, sorry, Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It's the argument of the greater to the lesser, right? The most precious thing that God has is his son. He freely offered up his son on the cross for our needs so that you and I as sinners can have our sins paid for in full by our Lord Jesus. That's the free offer of the gospel that sinners can stand before God and not be zapped dead by the lightning bolt. 
that Jesus willingly offered himself, that God spared no expense. He spared nothing for you and I so that we as sinners can be made whole and washed clean. And here the Apostle Paul is saying, hey, if, if God is willing to give his precious only begotten son, why would it be the case that he would hold anything good back from you? That this ought to be our attitude when we go to him in prayer. God, if it's not now, it's at your perfect timing. If it's important to me, you will give it to me. You will give me the very best. And that when we go to God, we ought to think glory. Wasn't that, wasn't that what we read earlier in Psalm 29, verse 9? The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry glory. That when you and I receive the answer to prayer, eventually, whether it be a day later, a week later, 50 years later, that we would cry glory. Glory be to God. This prayer that I prayed for years ago, decades ago, for, for many, many months, but then, you know, I forgot about it. He answered it this, this long later. And that the, the prayers that we asked for of wanting a certain thing, and then realizing, hey, he held that back from us, and we're, we're seeing the reason why he did, and we would cry glory also. Here, we ought to have high expectations and great hope of our God. That God, our God is not a petty God. So if we're going to go to him asking anything, we shouldn't ask for, for measly table droppings. We should ask for exceedingly great things. It tells us what we think about our God. The fourth point, God's powerful provision in prayer. In the latter half of verse 16. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. <clears throat> Here we see that um, in this verse, we have presented to us the ministry of intercessory prayer. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. So the Apostle Paul is saying that I, he, he is one who is bowing his knees to the Father. Yet, who is he praying for? In verse 16, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power. This is intercessory prayer. The Apostle Paul is getting on his knees before the Father, but yet he's praying for other people. He's, he's praying for these Ephesian Christians. Here, you think about how love for others is expressed. It's expressed, the world knows about affection, love of affection, but uh, it has some time or some difficulty understanding uh, the love of discipline or rebuke. So you think about how the scriptures say if you, will, if you love your son, you will not spare the rod. So by discipline or rebuke. And say, so also with your friend, right? With your family members, with those you know that, that if, if you love them and if they are in need of some type of rebuke or admonishment, that, that you would freely give it, candidly. And also this matter of prayer that those we love, we pray for. The Bible is full of examples of intercessory prayer. You think about in Numbers 12, we looked at that a few weeks ago, that Moses interceded 
for his sister Miriam when she sinned, when she rebelled against uh, the, the appointed leadership of Moses. That Job, at the end of the book of Job, Job 42, Job interceded for his three friends. And that God received his friends once again. We have also Jesus' example in John 17, that he interceded for all believers in his high priestly prayer. That he didn't just pray for the, his disciples who would be pointed as his apostles. He prayed for all the believers who would come after them hearing the message. Here, we're reminded that in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, that you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. What we ought to understand by this, we think about what we learn from the Shorter Catechism. How does Christ execute the office of a priest? He does it in two ways. Once, in his once offering up himself, is a satisfy to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God. He does it in another way, though. He makes continual intercession for us. That's part of his role as a priest. And we, we don't offer ourselves up to others, uh, or sacrifice to satisfy divine justice, because we cannot. But part of our role as priests is that we pray for others. This wasn't distinct this wasn't unique to Paul's ministry as a, an apostle or a minister. It's true for every one of you who are in Christ. You are a royal priesthood. That you are the ones, your eyes and your ears, see and hear the needs of others around you. Here, we, you, think about, you think about the two tools in my toolbox, the Word of God and prayer. The same two tools in your toolbox. And part of your ministry to others is that you would bear witness of the good news and that you would pray for them. This involves oftentimes not just praying privately for them, which you should always be doing, but at times it also means that you would offer them prayer, that you would pray with them. And here we, we ask, is it right to require other Christians to be able to pray for others, with them, and for them? And it should be a goal for you as a Christian that you would be able to pray. I, I'm not asking every Christian to be able to come up before the church and lead a prayer for everyone. No, that's, that's not being requested. But you should be able to pray for another person privately, right? That, that this is one of the tools in your toolbox as a priest that you would be able to intercede for them. And not being able to do so, this is a hindrance of some sort. Of course, you want to pray for them privately, but oftentimes the prayer of others, hearing them pray for you, is fills a great need, serves a great purpose. Now you think about how the prayers of Christians is beneficial to our society. This is the major way in which Christians are the salt of the earth, that, they, that we have this preserving effect, that we pray for our, our city, we pray for our rulers, we pray for those around us. Right here, we think about some of the things for which we would pray. For your non-Christian family members, for, for those who are in your workplace, in your neighborhoods, 
that we would bow the knee and pray that God would open their eyes, that he would open their ears, that he would take away their hearts of stone, to give them hearts of flesh, that they might worship our Lord Jesus Christ. That they would be given a heart that longs for God. Here, regarding fellow Christians, that you and I would pray for one another, for our strengthening, for our growth, for our sanctification, that our faith might not fail. Think about what Jesus prayed for Peter. Peter prayed, or he, he prayed for Peter in that very way. I prayed, Satan asked to sift you as wheat, but I prayed for you that your faith might not fail. Here, Jesus is telling, hey, listen, you are, you are going to fail. Though he says, hey, I would lay down my life for you, right? And, and well, he was, he was deceived, right? He was self-deceived, and, and Jesus was worrying, hey, I've already prayed for you. Your faith won't fail. He's saying, hey, you're okay. And we're thankful that our Lord Jesus is one who is praying for us. Here, you think about our own prayers. That we often pray for matters for ourselves, right? And I mentioned that our prayers are diagnostic, right here. You think about, is it right to pray for our daily food? Sure, God commands it, right? You see the example in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread, right? But... Our prayers must extend beyond just the material and the physical. We think also about prayers for whom, right? That we we like to pray for things for ourselves, and we ought to. We ought to pray for those within our family, but those prayers ought to extend out to to others. We're told to pray for those in the body of Christ, pray with and for one another. We're told to pray for those who persecute us, for those who hate us, because this is how... This is how things might change. Hey, how, how does God deal with our enemies? What is the best that God does to our enemies? It's not that God turns them uh, to dust and, and then he, he reduces their homes to piles of rubble. No. The best that he does is he turns our enemies to our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is what we ought to pray for. We ought never to pray that God would cut off his word and his grace from our enemies. Instead, we should be praying that God would extend his grace to them, that they might become friends, loved ones. Here we, we think about how, if anyone would think, wait a minute, if I spend so much time praying for other people, I'm presenting my requests before the great king. What about the blessings that I would have gotten had I spent that time praying for myself. Here, here we're thinking about God being a finite king. A king only has so many resources. But our king of kings, the almighty God, is infinite. And it's not as if, uh, if, if God spends time thinking and providing for those whom we love and those whom we hate, it's not as if we get less of him. You look at the example. Look at the example of Job. Job 42.10, the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends, and the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. Did you hear that? It's when he prayed on behalf of his friends that they would be restored, that we're told that God restored to Job not, not what he had before, but he doubled. He gave him a double blessing. So it's not as if you and I 
receive less blessing when we are diligent to pray for those around us. We're told that we actually get greater blessing, not less, greater blessing. Here, we think about the duty that we have to support other members through intercessory prayer. 1 Corinthians 12, 26. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Here, this prayer for those around you is very much like being part of the body for worship. People tend to think, well, if I'm not there, I'm just foregoing the blessings that I would receive. This verse, 1 Corinthians 12, 26, says, no, you're wrong. You do forgive, you, you, you forego the blessings that you would have received, but you also rob the blessings from the body of Christ. You understand that? People only think individually, hey, I... I have the prerogative not to receive blessings by not being among God's people. But regarding this body, and if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. What happens if you have an injury on your left leg? You need to compensate with your right leg. And you think about what happens. So that injury on your left leg, you compensate with your right leg. Your right leg gets weakened. Your back gets out of whack. You, you start to have these back injuries. So you, you ask, well, what about that person who says, hey, I'm going to forego praying for those around me. I'm going to forego being present in worship, being part of the body. It's not just his own loss. The whole body suffers with him. It has a negative effect on the rest of the body. Here, we think also about this power in verse 16. That he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Notice that the description of power here, the Apostle Paul did not say anything at all regarding that the circumstances around you would change. He prayed that the change would be the Spirit's power in your inner being. It's not, hey, I'm going to pray that the circumstances around you would change. You ask people, well, what's going wrong? Well, I have these difficulties. It's okay. Well, what is it, what is it that you'd like me to pray for you about? Well, pray that the God would, would change all the circumstances around me. Because if he did, then I would be satisfied. I would be happy. And it's often at those times that we realize, no, wait a minute. You don't mature by, by God changing your circumstances. You mature because God gives you his power in your inner being. Right? So here, you look at how God dealt with people in the past. Second Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul. Concerning this, I implore the Lord three times that he might... That it might leave me. This is a, the thorn in the flesh. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. There could be very, any various thorns that you have in your life. And you could pray for circumstances. You know what? Just change whatever that is. Fix this issue. But you realize God can do that. He often does do that, 
But he desires to see that there would be a change within us first regarding how we receive it, how we trust in him, how we're patient, how he stretches us and grows us. Here the Apostle Paul speaks about this matter of contentment in Philippians chapter 4. It's because there is contentment in your life and mine that God says, hey, that's power in your inner being. Here, notice also that this strength the strength is, uh, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's not often the physical strength that God provides. It's not often the uh, political connections, right? The, the ties to the decision makers that you have. Oftentimes, when this inner power comes by the Holy Spirit, it's not because he's given us outward physical strength. You look at it in the example in the life of John Calvin and how weak this man was, how often we're told that he had to stop from preaching so that he could hack up blood or, or he preached not standing on both feet. He, he preached you know, on a mat, on a pallet of some sort. You look how many books he wrote and we think about how uh, he was this great theologian. We undermine the fact that the man was, was a minister. He was a preacher first and foremost. He wasn't an armchair theologian. But the bottom line is, he was a man of great weakness. And God used that weakness. So also for you and for me. That we ought to understand, oftentimes it's the taking away of health that God uses to strengthen us spiritually. This is how you get strengthened in the inner being. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That God is the one who gives strength to his people. He is the one who blesses his people with peace. And he does so by taking away some of the outer strength. And giving us inner strength as you and I grow in our dependence upon God. Realizing how dependent we are on him. That it's by his spirit that he strengthens us.